Judges 19, starting in verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with, him, with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him until he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he rose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart, wait until the, the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed on and went there, went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. I'll be reading from Judges 21 to 6 and then 35 to 48. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Bathsheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as the man to the Lord at Mizpah. 
And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibad, that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine and said, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her into pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had sent against Gibeah. Then the men ambushed, hurried, and rushed against Gibeah. The men... Oh, wait. It was I think I remember that twice. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that they were that were, were when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city. The men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, Surely they are defeated before us, as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed. For they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore, they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Nohar, as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor, and they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pursued hard to Giddon, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But... 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found they set on fire. 
And I'll be reading chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there, and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Rimon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time, and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead. But they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin, because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin, that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so, and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Thanks, Beth. Friends, I think we should give a round of applause to the readers. It's a hard slog. They got there. Uh, the reason why I'm doing that is to give you a bit of a scope of the passage that we're spending our time in this morning. There's a bit of ground to cover, and I'm going to do my best to keep moving. And so with that in mind, I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come before your throne. 
we come and ask that you would stir our hearts this morning, as you've already been doing, and ultimately you point us to you, our great King. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you've been following with us, we are in the last section in the book of Judges. We've finished our series, and if you uh, sort of read fairy tale stories, or if you read like, you know, those movies where there's the evil person, and the evil person, you want to beat them up, and you want to make sure they're done with, and you think, this is it. This is the last section. Maybe uh, evil will be finally destroyed. And then you hear what you just heard, and you go, oh, well, that's an awkward way to finish the story. See, what we have here is, um, in a sense, I think, deliberately by uh, the author, and particularly because God's Word, it, it should cause us to squirm a little. I mean, last week, Cam did a fantastic job to remind us again of what it means to have man-made religion and what that looks like. And what we're seeing is that kind of outflow continuing in the book of Judges. Now, the story is nothing new. I don't know if you remember, we picked this up, right? In the very start of the book of Judges, in Judges 2, we talk about how they abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Asherah. That is, they went and served the other gods or the gods of the kingdom. And God would hand them over. And we learned about this cycle that was there. And that cycle was uh, they would turn away from God, they would worship the other gods, and then God would hand them over to the enemies. And they would say, oh, we're sorry, Lord, we shouldn't have done that. And God would provide a judge for them, and the judge would deliver them, and then it would be all good, and then it will go back again. And here we have, in the last few chapters of Judges, a very confronting, true account of what happens... When there is no king, when sin and our own desires rule. I mean, verse 1 starts off with that statement, in those days there was no king. And the bookend of these chapters finish off with to say, in those days there was no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This morning, I want us to consider three things. Firstly, I want us to consider the story of a kingless priest. Secondly, I want us to consider the story of a kingless nation. And finally, the cry for a king. What do I mean by a kingless priest? So we meet this guy, this Levite. Now, if you follow Bible stuff, the Levite was a priest. And we come up to the point of getting introduced to him. We don't know much about him. All we do know is his title, that he is a Levite. But it's very clear that he's just a Levite by name, not by the way that he lives. See, to be a priest in those days, particularly a Levite priest, there were certain requirements. Now, whether if you were a high priest or whether just an everyday kind of Levite priest, there were specific things that God had commanded. And you can actually find this in the book of Leviticus. I'm sure all of you have read Leviticus. It's a thrilling read, particularly at bedtime. But it is true, and it's real. It's there for a purpose. Now, if you read anything in the Old Testament, I would strongly encourage you, to take time to read those books that you skip, like Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and so on, because it sets the scene for you. See, for a Levite priest, it was said in Levite, Leviticus 21, they must be holy unto their God and not profane his name. Not only that, they were not allowed to marry any woman defiled by prostitution or divorced. In other words, they weren't just to have a concubine as this guy does because it was very clear that their refusal of sin was ultimately showing that they belonged to God. So how do we meet this guy, this Levite priest? In the first few verses, it says, Firstly, he's in the remote hill country. 
Not only that, he decides to have a concubine. Now, it is to, to, to the reader and to us and the original audience to kind of go, what is he doing away? What, why is he not at the temple? Why is he not uh, doing what he's required as a Levite? Not only that, why is he not with his wife? Why is he acquiring a concubine? It should stare something in the Jewish audience and including us as we're going, hey, this is not right. Would be like you guys hearing at some point, if, which is not true by the way, if any of your pastors had a girlfriend on the side. That's sinful, it's wrong. It should stir something and you go, that's not right. What are they doing? But here is the thing. This is the life of the Levite. And in many ways what we're seeing is kind of like you know those soap operas with lots of stuff going on. That's what we're introduced to. His concubine or his wife, as the passage changes a little bit later, uh, the language is that she's angry with him. And so because she's angry with him, she cheats on him. And so she goes and sleeps with someone else. And then she runs off back home. For four months, she's away. The Levite, the husband, must have missed her. Isn't that cute? So he decides to go pursue her. And it's all wonderful, it sounds, right? He's going after the, the girl. But he's not really going after the girl. Who does he spend most of the time talking to? The father-in-law. I mean, it's the father-in-law is so happy to see him. I mean, he's not there to convince the concubine as such. He's spending time with the father-in-law. That's the language in the passage. And it's to the point that for five days, they have a wonderful time. The son-in-law and father-in-law having a bit of a party, having meals, drinking it up. And I think what the author is trying to hint is this woman doesn't really mean much to this guy. She's just some sort of property. Friends, what happens is when we take away God and his moral compass, what he requires and asks of us, ultimately our lives will be driven based on what we want. And what you're seeing is displayed here in the Levite's life. I mean, this, so ma- so, this so-called man of God, a priest, should be living for the things of God, but he's only really living for himself. He's only interested in himself. See, what we're seeing is a display of a man who is a kingless person. God is not king of his life. God is not the true king of his life. And that should question you and I, ooh, who is the king of my life? I mean, it's not just for the Levite, even the father-in-law himself. The father-in-law doesn't sound like in the text that he's defending his daughter in any way. He's spending time with this priest, I mean, he's doing what is required of him, that he's being overly hospitable to this guy. The language is that they were so glad. They were having such a wonderful time. I mean, this guy's not even calling this guy out and going, hold on, mate, aren't you a priest? Why, do you have a con- Why are you using my, wa- my daughter as a concubine? Rather, he spends time eating, drinking. Friends, what we have is both in the Levite and this father-in-law, men who are living for themselves. They're not living to please God. What we're seeing is lives that are kingless, where God is not king. And that is no different for you and I. That's the same question you and I should ask. Is God king of our lives in all areas? Or is he only king on Sundays, during small group, those Christian events? Is he king everywhere? 
or do we over-accommodate to, to kind of please others rather than living to please God? And when we read this story and we hear this story, we need to be asking, oh, where am I? Who am I in this story? Who are we in this story? This is the kingless priest. And then we head to this road trip they decide to take. He finally decides to leave. He takes his servant, he takes his wife, he takes all the goods, and off they go. The servant turns around and says, hey, we should stop for a bit. Uh, it's getting dark, which means it's going to get dangerous. Let's go to the city, the city of the Jebusites. It's late. Now, it almost seems humorous, but the Levite priest all of a sudden gets very morally, stands to stand up. He goes, hold on. How can we go to that city? We can't go to that city. Don't you know who that city is? That is a foreign town. It's not part of Israel. We shouldn't go there. And as much as it sounds really holy, you know, he's a Levite, he's a priest, maybe he's acting out, ultimately what he's really being is an arrogant guy. He's saying, how dare you? It's what it is displayed here is moral religion. It's not because he wants to worship God, and that's why he's not going there. It's moral religion displayed. So they continue. They continue a town where, in some sense, if you can't know all the story, you go, please, I wish you hadn't gone there. They think it's going to be okay. They think they're about to go meet to a town of their own nation. In a sense, as the language said, their own brothers. It belongs to the Benjamites. Uh, Like in those days, whenever you headed into a town and you were a stranger, the normal practice was to go into the town center and wait because there was some ex- something that was expected if you're a stranger coming. And that was to have hospitality shown to you as a stranger. See, I think the author is making it very clear. As much as the Levite priest is kind of doing his own thing, the whole nation is doing their own thing. There's no one showing, in a sense, kind hospitality to these group of strangers. See, hospitality was a big deal in those days. It was actually not just a virtue of ancient times. It was required by Jewish law. You can read it again in Leviticus and places in Deuteronomy. They were made to show um, respect the strangers and the poor and to be hospitable to them. But not only that, the reason, the underlying reason given by God to them was because you were strangers in a foreign land, you too should be hospitable to those that are strangers in your midst. But it seems the one who decides to show hospitality is not the Benjamites, not their own people, but it's a guy who's working in town. He's on a work business, kind of working there, and he's the one who shows hospitality to this group. And the language that he uses is interesting. He says, peace on you. It's almost saying, it will be fine, I'll take care of it. It's, it's, it's like gracious language happening in this moment. This man is willing to be hospitable to this group. And he also makes a very plain statement. Hey, it's not good for you to be in the town center because I think he knows what this town is like. It's not going to be good at night time. So they head off. Now, the town they're in, the Benjamites, are well known. We heard about them in Judges 1. They were the guys who ultimately, rather than driving out the neighboring people, they decided to leave them to live. And so what happens is synchronization comes. 
And in any place when synchronization comes, where the things of God are pushed away, there are a few things starts creeping up in culture. See, the God of Israel was not important to them. They started giving in to the cultures around them. And every time other things get um, bought into the culture, the thing that always comes up first is what will be self-gratification for myself. The thing that's often elevated very quickly when God is taken out of a culture is self-gratification. And that is displayed in the pursuit of sex and sexuality. This past week, I was listening to a radio show called Triple J, and they have a talkback sort of thing, and they were doing a thing on sex in the modern age. And the conversation was going about this thing called the gap year. Now, if you're near 12, usually a gap year is you take a bit of a break from your studies and you, you know, have holidays. And I don't know what you do, you work or something like that. Um, according to this, there's a thing called a relationship gap year. Apparently, it's very popular in our, in our young people, or particularly millennials, where they say, we're going to take a break from the serious relationship we have so we can explore these things. Now, remember, these are people who don't know Jesus. And so this lady was saying to him, you know, I finally found myself. I found out that if I took a break from my serious relationship we've had for years, I could have opened myself to other relationships and we've come back and our relationship is stronger because we've decided we can involve other people in our relationships. So we've got an open relationship. Because what we're seeing displayed is when you remove God, it's all about self. What works for me? It's good for me. Using the story of Judges... Everyone does what is pleasing to their own eyes. This man is hospitable to the guests to the point that he's having a wonderful party. Verse 22 says their hearts are merry. They're partying it up. And they don't realize what's about to turn up to their front door. There are men who arrive who have one thing in mind to fulfill their fleshly desires. The language is they're worthless men, or or a better way to put it is they're evil, wicked, unrighteous men, and they want one thing. They demand to have sex with that Levite priest. What we have is a full-blown picture of vile and wickedness. The old man, for a moment, when you read the story, goes, Hey, brothers! Please, don't do this. This is wicked. He says, brothers, please, these are my guests. Don't do this. It's disgraceful. And you know what? I wish the story would stop there. There's a part of me that goes, oh, finally, maybe the guy will turn around and go, hey, look, you know, maybe all the guys go, oh, bad idea. Yeah, what were we thinking? And walk off. No, this man continues to talk and he says, here are my daughters. Take them. They've never known a man. Then they say, then he says, I'll oh, take the concubine. Do whatever you want. Abuse them. You'll have your way. This man is far more concerned for this kingless priest than protecting the welfare of his own daughters and the woman, the concubine that's there. He's far more concerned for the safety of his guests than the purity of his daughters. This too is a kingless man. And the correlation here should trigger, for those of us who know the Bible, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the same sort of picture, but in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was a foreign land. This is happening in Israel's own backyard. This should not be happening. It's a picture that everyone is guilty, everyone is living kingless lives. 
The rowdy crowd, the men say exactly what they want. And the kingless priest turns around and hands over his wife or concubine. This woman is raped and abused all night. If you are a man, and you're reading or listening to this story, I pray you do not gloss over it. The men in this story are wicked, and the men who handed them over are cowards. These are not men we will ever desire to follow or aspire to. And in the story of Judges, particularly these few chapters, three times the women are treated as commodities for man's own pleasure. And if you proclaim to be a follower of Jesus or a Christian man, whatever language you use, I mean, any man, this should stir in you something that says, this is not right. This should not be happening. And friends, before you and I shake our heads in our self-righteous attitudes, which I'm very tempted to do, Every time you and I are involved or tempted to view a sister in Christ, a woman in your life, or whoever she is, as commodities, you're no different than these men. Because every woman that God has created is an image bearer of the living God. We are called to love them as Christ loves them. And if you or we know of anyone abusing any woman, they are cowards. And we too are sometimes tempted to get caught up in our culture. Did you know that when we are tempted to click onto that picture, when we are tempted to watch that scene where we ought not to, when we look at the materials of the world and treat women as objects, we're joining in such men as this. Our call is to turn to our great God and seek His forgiveness and ask Him to give us His eyes for the women in in our lives. We as Christian men... As men in general, particularly if you are a follower of God, you are to defend women from any cowardly, abusive man. And what it pursues in these passages are terrible scenes. And you would think that maybe the Levite's staying up all night, crying, weeping. He shouldn't have done what he did. Maybe the old man is ridden with guilt. And what we see in verses 26 is confronting. The woman comes back after her terrible ordeal. He wakes up. He goes to the door in verse 28. And his response to her is, get up. What is confronting is in the passages, the way it's written is that this guy had to sleep. He went to bed. This man thinks that this woman that he came after is just a disposable object for him. He's not even faced. He doesn't even bat an eyelid. There's no language on him going and picking her up from the threshold and saying, I'm so sorry for what I have done. Are you okay? He's not even calling out for vengeance at that time. He just tells her, get up, let's leave. This man is living for himself. And then he goes on this high moral ground and desires to head off back to Israel. And he calls out for vengeance. And the way that he does it is confronting where he cuts this woman up. And sense of the 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes are so shocked by this, they say nothing like this has happened or been witnessed in the entire time since Israel has left Egypt. It's to say, hey, take careful note. What is going on? This is terrible. For this kingless man is living for himself. 
And this woman is sacrificed. And in Judges 20 to 21 is what you have all out civil war. It's all the tribes of Israel against the Benjamites. And what's interesting is that the, 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 um, the Levite priest is then asked, what has happened in Judges 20? They say, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite husband of the woman who has murdered answered, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. And so I did what I did, is what he says ultimately. This priest doesn't turn around and says, Guys, I am responsible for this. I did it. It's my fault. Not only that, neither are the Israel Jewish nation turning around going, Hold on, buddy. Why do you have a concubine? You're a Levite priest. And not only that, what are you doing going to that city? Why are you not at the temple? There's all these questions that are not being asked. What they're focused on right now is they think this is wrong. We, you know, we've, been, uh, we've been hurt. We need vengeance. We need retribution. And so they decide. And notice what he says. All you Israelites make a decision here. And in this moment, even the Levite priest is saying, let's inquire of the Lord on what we should do. That doesn't come later till after they've decided to go into battle. And as allies, they head to war. And what's confronting in these passages is all of a sudden they decide to ask God. All of a sudden they decide to ask God. Three times they ask God. And what it shows is God is just religion to them. He's like this lucky charm that we're about to go into battle, so we better do what we're expected to do. So let's go and ask him some logistical things. Hey, who should go first? Who's the tribe? And God responds in grace, which is amazing to me, and says, the Jew- Judah should go. They go and battle. Things don't go well. Now it starts getting intensified, intensified in verse 28. They say, hey, hasn't gone well. Should we too now also continue this battle? And notice the language says, our brothers, the Benjamites, Now it's starting to get more personal. And God says, yes. And what ensues is a bloodbath. What have we seen here is God giving them over to what they want, what they desire. And God in his grace somehow is involved in his sovereign plan and everything is destroyed. Property, livestock. And some commentators have been talking about maybe and most probably some women as well. What's going on here is destruction and vengeance, and all they're doing and focused on is getting that happen. And in the midst of this chaos, all of a sudden they go, oh, what have we done? Oops, maybe we shouldn't have done this. And they cry out, not saying, Lord, we're sorry, please forgive us. They cry out and say, God, why, O oh Lord, God of Israel, has this happened to Israel? An entire tribe has disappeared from Israel today. Friends, we know why it's happened. It's because if a kingless Levite priest was not living according to what God required of him, rather for his own needs. It's because of a kingless nation who was more focused on vengeance and retribution. And in the midst of it, God is involved. God is the one who allows and gives them victory. And they respond and they weep. The weeping is not like, what have we done? What a mess we've made. They're more interested in going, oh, 
we might not be a strong nation anymore. That's why they're weeping. They realize, oh no, look, we've almost destroyed our nation. We're meant to be 12 tribes. We need to have the Benjamites. And they think to themselves, how are we going to do this? Quickly, we need to fix this problem. And they offer peace offerings before the Lord. A census is taken. They are definitely regretful for what they have done. They're definitely not saying sorry to God. They think, oh, how can we fix this mess ourselves? Let's do it ourselves. How do we get the Benjamites back to the positive? Let's see how we can figure this out. Oh, I know, to keep the tribe going, of course they need to have kids. How do we do this? Oh, but wait, we've made a, we've made a vow because, you know, the Benjamites, we shouldn't let our daughters marry their sons. Oh, this is a bit of a problem. Oh, it happens that a tribe didn't rock up to the census. Well, let's go sort this out. Let's go after them. And what happens is this permission for ethnic cleansing and genocide, all for the selfish purpose of a nation. Wives, fathers, kids are murdered. And kingless nation does as it pleases. Young girls, is the language, and even women are used and taken and abused for the purpose of tribal survival. And this plan is so filled with their own situation and them trying to sort it out. There's so many problems with this. And they think to themselves, we don't have enough. What do we do now? Oh, their solution. Oh, guess what? There's this tribe that didn't rock up, but, you know, not the tribe that didn't rock up, but there's this other tribe. They do like this festival. And you know what festival is it? It's the festival of the Lord. Do you know every festival that is given to Israel is a reminder of their covenant relationship with God. And they're saying, when they're doing this, you go there and wait. And you kidnap those women for yourselves. And, you know, if their other tribe says, hey, didn't we make a pact? We'll just say, listen, don't worry about it. It's all for the national interest. Friends, what we're seeing is a godless nation who ultimately forgets their king. They're ultimately living for themselves and to the point that they're ultimately wanting to cover up their mess with their own style of grace. It's filled with sin. It is not true grace. This is a picture of a kingless priest, a kingless nation. And this is why there's a stirring of saying, we need a king. We need a king. And Israel, and later on in the story of 1 Samuel, does cry out for a king. Because Judges follows on with 1 Samuel. And they say to Samuel, hey, you're too old, buddy. Your sons are getting old. They're no good. We need a king. And this displeased Samuel. And Samuel goes before God. And God says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel. But they have, been reject- they have rejected me for being king over them. The story of rejection of God as their king began in Judges and continues in the story of 1 Samuel, the story of King David, that all of that, ultimately they're rejecting their God as their king. And so God gives them a king. Do you know who the first king of Israel was? Saul. Do you know which tribe he comes from? Benjamin. It's quite interesting how God works and he says, well, I'll give you a king after your own heart. 
But God being the gracious king, God being the sovereign king, is already at work to do his ultimate plan. See, along with the book of Judges, there's another story happening. It is the story of Ruth. If you read the first chapter of Ruth, it says that during the time of Judges, God is at work to do his ultimate plan. And through this woman, through Ruth and this beautiful love story, there comes Boaz. And out of Boaz comes Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. God, in the midst of the chaos, is doing his ultimate plan. And we know the story of David. If you know your Bible, you might think, oh, he's a great king, but he's not the perfect king. Through his line, he would raise a better, more glorious, most wonderful king. The king that we are all in need of, King Jesus. And friends, that would no be different for you and I. That same question belongs to you and I today. Is Jesus the king? I mean, who has king? Who's your king? Who has authority? And whose authority are you living under? If it's not King Jesus, it will be under something or someone else. Is it under the kingly authority of sexual pleasure? Is it under the kingly authority of what work demands? Is it under the kingly authority of whatever it is? Is it under the kingly authority of vengeance and retribution in your own terms? Whatever it is in front of you, Christian friends, we do have a king... And this king is beautiful and wonderful because this king, unlike the cowards that are mentioned in this story, enters into this world, your world and my world, is willing to be sacrificed for your sin and my sin, who is the perfect king, who rather than living for himself, perfectly obeys what the Father requires of him to go to the cross and to be rejected on your behalf and my behalf. And this king, unlike the men in this story who threw out that woman, did not throw out his wife but pursued her and died for her on the cross. He gave himself up for his church. And if you believe in this king, we are then called to follow, love and serve him. And if you don't know this king, the only hope in this, this depraved, broken and chaotic world of the suffering and justice that you will see will not be found in yourself will be found in the king who will bring true justice. And if you know Jesus, this means now under his kingly authority, we are sent as a servant, subjects of his kingdom. Our lives are no longer our own. You may have heard this past week about the young man by the name of John Allen Chow. Now, I'm not going to go into whether if he should have been going into that remote island and he got martyred and so on. There's a lot of logistical stuff in there. But I don't know if you saw this. His letter was uh, published that he wrote to his family as, said, as his last letter. He says, Brian and Mary and mum and dad, you guys might think I'm crazy in all of this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or at God if I get killed. Father, please live your lives in obedience to whether he has called you too. And I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. This is not a pointless thing. The eternal lives of this tribe is at hand, and I can't wait to see them around the throne of God, worshipping in their own language, as Revelation 7, 9, 10 states. I love you all, and I pray none of you, uh, I pray none of you love anything in this world more than Jesus Christ. Sola de gloria. Glory to God. We may think that man is a fool. 
That is a man, I think, was caught by the love of Christ and he did what he did to do, to go and even be willing to die. Friends, we too are servants of this King. That means you too and I have been called to declare, to display and to live out the values of this kingdom in your workplace, in your home, in your school, in your uni, wherever it is. That may even cost you your life. Jesus lived for the kingdom, for the Father's kingdom, to proclaim that truth, and he cost his life. We have a wonderful Savior. As Hebrews finishes in Hebrews 12, and I'll finish with this. We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the true king. We're all called to follow him. And he's the only king that we really need. With that in mind, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before your throne as the risen king. We thank you that you are the king of the universe. So if there are areas in our lives that we haven't given to you to rule and reign over, please help us to do that now. Please forgive us for the times where we've just been our own kings. Change our hearts. We thank you that you were the perfect sacrifice. We thank you that you are the author and perfecter of our faith. And with the light of that, help us to live the life you've called us to live. In your name, amen.